Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number seven of the Success Series. I am your host, David Berg. I'm here alongside Michael Konovsky, our co-host. And our guest of today is Erin Featherston. Erin started her career in fashion and developed a really successful fashion line for a woman. Started in Paris, ended up in New York City. She's now expanded to interior design and has just launched a collaboration with Anthropology, combining both home and fashion. I'm excited to be here with you today, Erin, and the floor is yours. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I love that you're doing this podcast, and it's a pleasure to speak with you. Awesome. I know I gave a high-level intro over your career, but if you could just share a little bit more about, you know, you went from fashion to interior design, and now it seems like both worlds are colliding, so. Yeah. Um, well, I was very fortunate. I grew up in the Bay Area of California. I went to UC Berkeley, and I really had this strong draw and passion um, to study fashion design. Um, as soon as I graduated UC Berkeley, I moved to Paris to attend Parsons School of Design in Paris. And I ended up staying on in Paris to create my first collection, which I showed in Paris on the runways of Paris. Very cool. And was fortunate to have a strong start and eventually moved to New York City where I showed in New York Fashion Week for over a decade. Um, I had some really phenomenal moments in my career. I was um, making clothes at the designer level, but um, early in the trend of mass retailers partnering with high-end designers, I had Target come to me in 2006, and I had just about only um, three runway shows under my belt. And they asked me if I would be interested in doing one of their Target high-end fashion collaborations, which I, of course, said yes to. It was an amazing opportunity, and I was only 25 years old. Wow. And simultaneously, I was participating in the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, which is um, back then pre-social media. But they were really the gatekeepers. So for upcoming young design talent, that was really, you know, important to kind of come up in the fashion system. So I had those two things come out at the same time in 2007, which really helped me establish my brand. And it was sold at all the major U.S. and international department stores. And I went on to have um, other fun career highlights. I was in addition to having my own line, um, guest creative director at Juicy Couture in 2010 and launched a secondary line called Erin Erin Featherston in 2011. Um, so I got to do a lot of things very young in very my career cool. and really got to live my dream. Absolutely. And we look forward to hearing more on that. At 24 years old, 25 years old, accomplishing anything at, a, at that level is, is very impressive especially in the fashion world, which is, I'm sure you And know, in a foreign country. <laughs> in a foreign country, no less. And did you speak the language at the time? I, I did speak French by that time. I had been in Paris for at least two or three years already. It took me a while to get the hang of French. And also, um, I was attending Parsons, which being an American school, the classes were in English. And the classes were so rigorous. I didn't really have time to take French. I just thought I was going to pick it up, but it took longer than I expected. But wow. eventually I got there. <laughs> and was it just from being assimilated with people of the culture? Or? Yeah, it's true. You know, I 
I was lucky enough to study both Spanish and Italian in school. So I know what it's like to learn a language in a classroom setting, mm -hmm. like with books and practice. And I learned French completely the other way, just basically picking it up from full immersion. I never took a French class, but I, I figured it out. <laughs> I figured it out. I'm sure having had some foundation in other romance languages was helpful, though right. French is pretty... Still pretty unique. Yeah. Not exactly like Spanish. Completely. So, Very cool. figured that out. And in, at that early on, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you were 15, 16 years old? When did that initially start? I did always have this dream of fashion, but from where I grew up in the Bay Area, that was a very far-fetched reality. It's not like I grew up in New York City where that industry has a presence, or even L.A., I feel like, has more of a presence than the San Francisco Bay Area. I think the closest that I could really get to the idea of fashion was actually just like walking around retail stores, which I did a lot when I was younger, just kind of like observing retail trends and being interested in clothes and really never being able to find what I wanted, which I think is like no matter what you're doing in your career is a great thread to follow to find a white space. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went to UC Berkeley, I also felt like... You know, there's there's what I really am interested in is not here. And so when I finally got to move to Paris, which is, in my opinion, definitely like the city to be in if you love fashion, I finally felt like, oh, I'm here. Like, I'm here. I found my people. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it was definitely the place for me to flourish there. And was there a fear at that time of, if this doesn't work out, then what comes next? Or were you so certain that you... Definitely. I mean, I think, like, you know, I had always done very well in school, you know, and I had a 4.0 at UC Berkeley. And so just doing more school still didn't feel like taking a plunge. It's just going to a specialized school. But, like, as school is coming to an end, like, basically your whole conscious life, like, you're only just thinking about, like, what am I going to do this summer? And what about right. the next semester? And, like, your life is mapped out for you. So I do think, like, when you finally are ready to exit school, it's totally daunting. And I didn't right away exactly know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted it to be fashion-related. And one good thing I had done was during my undergraduate years, I had taken every summer um, opportunity, I'd done a lot of like summer programs and internships to explore the idea of fashion through a lot of different lanes because you could identify that you love an industry, but there's so many different ways to participate in an industry. So like after my freshman year of college, I got an internship at Elle Magazine okay. in New York. And that was fantastic because at the end of that, I realized, oh, I not interested in covering fashion. Right. I don't want to work in a magazine, but it was so great that I understood what a magazine does. The following year, I actually worked in a PR showroom that was representing different fashion lines. So like I got to sort of see what that environment was like. Sure. And I also worked as a fit model for a fashion designer. So I got to go inside a fashion studio and see like, well, what does that look like? And I think with each thing you expose yourself to, you refine your sense of, you know, how do I fit into this? Right. And so by the time I got to Parsons, and I remember on registration day, I told this to the headmistress and she totally gave me like this French look like, yeah, yeah right. 
I was like, well, I'm just planning to be here for a very short time and I'll be starting my own life. Like I had that clarity by the time I started. Really? I feel like I remember one of my classmates told me like in the first semester, like you're like a walking mood board. And I didn't totally know what to make of that comment. But yeah, like in, way. in hindsight, I was like, oh, that's great. It just means like he could already see like what the Aaron brand was. Right. Because everything... You're ex on the everything you're expressing is like adding up to a cohesive vision. And I think like no matter what kind of a brand you're developing, you need to have like an essence to it. Right. And that came to me naturally. And then when you were building out this line initially, can you run us through how does that, what does that look like? I'm sure it's hours and hours of. Yeah. I'll tell you, because li listen, really what would have been the natural next step for me would have been to just get an internship in Paris. And here's like the funny part of the story. That's what I wanted to do. That's what my other classmates were doing. And I would have been happy to do that. Like, it doesn't take that long. You just spend a summer, three to six months. Like, that would have been really valuable. I could not get the proper visa paperwork together for, they call it a stagiaire visa in Which Paris. Means? Stagiaire is like their way of saying internship. Okay. And you need to get a special visa for it and I just I just couldn't get that paperwork I didn't know why it was like there was like a bureaucratic blockage okay so I was like well I'm not going to waste my time with that I'll just start you know I have I have a concept I'm just going to start making making clothes and I literally just was very determined and I had very little resources I remember I went to um a fabric they have like a big fabric, international fabric fair where all the fabric bills come and set up. It's called Premier Vision. Okay. It's in Paris. And I remember going there and just like talking to the different fabric vendors because even like, how are you going to buy fabric the first time? Right. It like breaking in to something professional when you're a student isn't that obvious. I remember chatting in Italian with the owner of this Italian silk mill. And I think right. he thought that was surprising and charming that I could chat Speak with him in Italian that he gave me a thousand euro credit okay. to buy some silk from him which is like only going to get you a few yards and and I had this beautiful French lace company called Solstice also they were like well we'll, we'll give you a thousand euros worth of lace and really between those two it was like enough to make like 30 scanty like outfits where oh, we, I just yeah. like wrote them a letter and just, just charming and they, yeah. yeah, I mean, like in looking back, like that was such a big deal to me, but right. to them, like it probably wasn't that big of a deal. Sure. And, um, like good on them for throwing like a bone to like young talent. Right. And I ended up making like a bunch of outfits and I just thought, oh, well, I'll go and, sh and show them at a sales trade show and see if I could get sales. And then I called the trade show and they sell you a booth that is priced by square footage. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they were just trying to like upsell me or if it was true, but they basically told me that, you know, the only booth left, it was very large. The and most it, expensive. Yeah, watch. it was going to be yeah. like 10,000 euros. <laughs> right. Okay. And I was thinking to myself for 10,000 euros, I could probably put on a runway show. Right. Like, I think I could do something more exciting than just rent this booth. booth here. So I gave up on the booth idea. 
I had one friend who was a journalist in fashion in Paris and she came over and she looked at my collection and she could see like she could see what I she she caught the vision right and she made a great suggestion to me to show off calendar during the week of haute couture in Paris which is basically like finding a loophole into getting yourself on the calendar and the minute she said it I was like yes that is exactly what I'm doing you know and I I can look back on my career like there have been moments where I had this like strong feeling of like, yes, that's the plan. And that was one of them. And oh, the next step was finding a PR person who would go out on a limb to do this with me. Believe in your line enough to. And, and believe me, I think I talked to every PR in Paris that to my face were like, yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll love to help you. But actually nobody came back with a yes. Until I find, because in Paris, like America is very pro-youth. Sure. And like into like a young phenomenon. But France, like the culture is a little bit different. They want to establish. So they want people, like they want to see a CV, like a big resume. So being this like 24-year-old American girl with basically no resume, I think it was just looking too risky for them. But I did finally find... The woman who had helped me, Beatrice Monceau, I'm still so grateful to her. And she had had a long career in fashion PR in Paris. And I didn't know why she decided that she would take a chance on me. And we put, and I remember I went to this hotel and I basically begged them, like, could I use like a space in your hotel? And they gave it to me for basically nothing. Like everything was a miracle. Like I did it with really very little money. And um, even the models, you know, they were just, came and did it because it was like to help you out. I don't know every I, I had like a lot of um bedevolence sure. <laughs> towards me in the beginning and it's so funny because looking back on that show like oh my god it's like embarrassing like it's totally an amateur show like the right. pacing was very slow like we didn't have enough people backstage like changing the outfits for it to go like fast enough right. but it somehow worked and and we had a fantastic turnout and i think that there was like a novelty factor that people were curious about like who is this this? who's this young american girl and like what are these clothes the clothes were like very fantasy very out there very different from what was going on at that moment in fashion and it just kind of like took off not really right after that show it it started took off and then i had a few other like amazing serendipitous things happened for me that just helped me take like big impactful steps right at the beginning and then moving from that to where you are now and all the successes you had through that were the lessons learned early on applicable throughout the rest of your life or is it an ever-going process that you feel you're constantly learning and adapting to i think there's something about being young that like even I wish I could still hold on to more, which is having nothing to lose Mm. and this like fearlessness and you haven't had too much negative feedback yet. (laughs) You're kind of like like not crushed, you know? And, And that was definitely the case for me. And like the irony is that over the course of 13 years, I was able to really build my brand build a team you know at the peak we i had 
a staff of 30, which is not like huge, but like Substantial. when you start as a one woman show, right? it's a lot to grow to there. And we had like so many accounts and you become like this very responsible business. Like right. then you're like constantly getting feedback, you know, because you need to be good at so many, so many other things. Like sure. in the beginning, it just had to be like, I just need to have a vision and get it across to people. Right. As you grow a business, you don't even know what you need to become good at. You need to become good at accounting and financing and HR and, you know, understanding legal matters like none of that is happening when you're like coming out of Parsons right. in your mind so you have to grow to have a business to support what the artistry or the passion is and I think that was always um hard or I just felt like it just wasn't fun I mean it wasn't that fun for me it's <laughs> like the accounting I was like oh yeah, god to make clothing and but I yeah. You have to, you have to become responsible. And so I know that I grew so much as a person to basically like grow and nurture the business to support the art. And then at the end, you know, what, what ultimately ended up happening for me was, um, you know, I had, I had really lived my dream, my fashion dream. I lived it. Like, I'm so grateful that I got to have the experience and like, just no regrets. And I also think I got to have that, like a special moment in time. Right. Like, even if I think I tried to do all of that again now, I'd, it's just a different world. Completely. So, you know, I just feel like I got to live something really special, a special moment in time. Um, you know, when I started, there was no social media. I started in 2005. So it was just like a completely different world. How were you getting the product out there? Was it word of mouth mostly? Fashion um, shows? I think press, like traditional medium press was very important. And then you just getting in the right shows, uh, right, the right stores. Sure. I had a great showroom that took me on, Showroom 7. Okay. And that was in Paris or New York? They were in New York. Okay. That's the Ericsons. Sure. And um, they helped me. You know, you need like it takes a, it takes a whole infrastructure to get a fashion brand out into the world, and then you need to have your manufacturing tight and factories. Right. And when I started, the norm was two seasons a year. Then, within a few years, it was you better be doing four seasons in a year. By the time it was 2016, 2017, we were doing 14 deliveries a year. Wow which is really intense. And so I think there's about a hundred unique styles sure. per delivery. It's a lot. It's so it became this really intense hamster wheel. Um, and so I, I had gotten married and I had my first child and I, I did the business for the first year of his life. And I came to the end of that year and I said, okay, so it was a really good year for the business, actually. It was really? like our best. Like we achieved so much that year. And I, but I said, like, okay, so you proved it. You could right. do this. You could have your baby. You could grow your business. And then I just had this like honest conversation with myself, but like, why do you need to do this? And for me, it was, um, I had just like a moment where I felt that. I was good. It was good. What I had done, right. I was really satisfied. And I just had this feeling that I'm not going to be able to continue to 
do both of these very important things well at the same time. Raising a child and running. Yeah, I wanted to be a very hands-on mom. I wanted to be with my children the majority of the time. I didn't want to outsource that. And I know what is required to have a successful fashion business. And it is, you know, it's it's, very time consuming. It's just your, it's your whole, it's all consuming. It's your whole existence. And for me, it was, you know, the brand was my name and I was the face of the brand. I mean, it was my whole identity. So I just didn't feel like I could continue to do both. So I felt like, it was a tough decision, but I closed my fashion brand so I could focus on motherhood. And fortunately, like, that was a good decision. I made that decision in 2017, and part of my thought process is I just felt that fashion as an industry was um, inherently dysfunctional okay. as a business model. Really? And I felt that myself as a relatively small player wasn't going to have the ability to do much about that. You either comply or get off the train. And I felt like, gosh, I'm going to get so burnt out, possibly miss my son's childhood to what? Like live to die another day. Right. You know, if I had been in tech or in an industry where you're seeing like, you know, 10, 20 X, like exits, like my thought process could have been different, but I just felt like I was personally fulfilled. Right. And, you know, I think I really made the right call when the pandemic came along. I saw a lot of people who are in my same position, you know, go through a really hard time. Right. And I don't doubt that I would have been having the same fate. So it was, it was nice that I was like kind of ahead of that curve. With all of that, how did you still feel comfortable enough to let go of that identity, which was really from your early 20s up until that point? It was, I, I'm i not going to lie, it was yeah. like a total crisis. I think I had a total identity crisis. How long, and how long was this thought process? And this- I mean, I think that first year was really tough. And um, while in that first year of my son's life, I was a very hands-on mom, I did have at least like a couple hours of childcare on weekdays so I could do my business and right when I closed my company like the nanny that had been with me she chose to go get her her graduate degree and I thought well great I'm gonna live the life of a full-time mom oh that was a shock because I was like some days I would just laugh I'm like wow I used to live in a reality where I would like go to my office and I had 30 people there waiting to waiting to like take take their marching orders and execute my vision. Right. And now I'm like serving at the pleasure of a tyrannical toddler. You know, you're like, I want scrambled eggs and you serve it and knock them down. I was like, how is this my life? Right. (laughs) So, you know, it was definitely an adjustment and my identity was very much entwined in that business. So feeling that all go so quiet, it was tough. Because I had to really look at, um, you know, how do you let your sense of self, how much do you let it be influenced by that, like, external feedback? I was living in Paris, and that was the same year that the Sofia Coppola movie of Marie Antoinette was being filmed. 
Kirsten Dunst was the star of that film. She is more or less my same age, so we're cohorts. Kept bumping into each other in Paris. And she was so sweet. And she always loved what I was wearing. And I was always wearing something I had made. Right. And so I was like, oh, let me like let me give you some clothes. And she just thought that that she was just very supportive. And she was like, I would love to help you. Like, I want to help you and your line. I think that's great. And um, I ended up making my my third season. Kirsten ended up starring in a short film okay. featuring my collection, which I had filmed by like a legendary, iconic fashion photographer named Ellen Von Unworth who I had met in the exact same way, like out at a party in Paris, love what you're wearing, like right. love your vibe, like let's do something together, just like that simple. And so, in, you know, the year coming off of like this big change, I remember I was hosting, I mean, I was, I was living in LA, we had moved to LA, and of course I like decorated my own house. Sure. And I was hosting an event for a friend and like, these women came over and they're like, oh my gosh, I love your house, love the vibe of this living room. And then they shared with me that they were developing a women's co-working space here in Los Angeles. And they said like, would you design the house for us? Yeah. Like we want it to feel just like your house. And I was like thinking to myself like, well, could I do that? Like I've done, I've, I've designed my own homes, I've designed my own office, but I wasn't thinking of myself like, in those terms they're like I even was like do I have the skills and sure. I was like yes I think I can do it and what I did to make sure that I succeeded was I found a really good assistant who had been an interior design who had years of working experience because I I think that especially in creative industries the vision is very important but it does boil down to execution and you must be able to execute. So I felt like, well, if I'm going to take a big step here and these good, this was a high profile project and I'm going to come out as an interior designer, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm bringing like someone to make sure that we execute properly. Right. And so she was a great partner. That was like my first project. And then it just kind of would pick up momentum. So a lot of the girls that had loved my clothes for many years were like, you're doing houses now? I need you to come and do my house. So the next project I did was for the actress Jenna Dewan. Okay. And she had just moved to a new home and she was going through a transition in her life. And she asked me to, could I come and design it? And I was able to bring in um, All Modern as a furniture partner, just sort of like you know, having a mind for branding, I was able to connect the dots and make something interesting for everyone. Me as the designer, interesting furniture brand, they get an interesting person to feature. So it was like a win-win for everybody. And that was, you know, profiled in like People Magazine. And it was like a pretty good second project for me. It, you know, it takes t from, from beginning to end of a project, it took almost two years. So it's, that product is just in stores now. We launched it just two two months ago. Well, congrats, very cool. But that was great for me because they called me to do a home collection and then we were just ha having such a good time in the design process that they called me one day. They were like, we need to do fashion too. Like, okay. you know, and I, anthropology used to be one of my like main vendors of my collection. We do very well. So we have a history of doing 
business together and Aaron Featherston clothing was sold there a lot. So it was like a really fun full circle moment to be able to do a fashion collection alongside the home collection and have a live at anthropology. Where do you garner your inspiration for new designs, for new art, with whether it's home, whether it's fashion? You know, I've always used like just my personal taste as like a compass. So like I shared with you in the very, very beginning, like I used to, just, I just remember like no matter where I was, I would just like walk stores endlessly and I could never really find what I was looking for. And when it came to furniture design, I had just gone through the process of, we had just gotten a new home. We got a new home to prepare for the birth of our third child. We needed a little more room. Sure. And I was like using those um, nesting hormones that you get when you're pregnant to like overdrive design this new house because right. I wanted everything to be ready for when baby was born. So to do that, I had just been like so deep into the market, like looking at everything, sourcing everything. And so I was hyper aware of what I wanted but couldn't find. Mm. So the the opportunity to actually design furniture couldn't have come at a better time. Because right. it, was, it was so fresh in my mind of like, well, what would I want if I could have anything and I could make anything? So, um, it, you know, that white space is- Allowed the yeah. putting for it. Yeah. It sounds like, I'm sure there was challenges along the way too, and you mentioned the few, but it sounds like life has flowed through whether it's, you know, your artistic mind or the way you move around life. It, it's really a, a flow state. doesn't feel like you're, you didn't force the fashion line. You didn't force it, right? It's like you had an opening for it. Like you said, there was that white space. And then it became a passion and ultimately a career. What do you think allowed you to be that type of person? Was it the way you were raised? Was it things you were exposed to early on in life? I think there were some really special aspects to my childhood that like set me up for this. And I'm so grateful for them. One, I had um, really an, an upbringing that really nurtured my imagination and creativity. Um, I think I'm just so lucky that like whether it was theater or just my mom facilitating like amazing art projects at home. My parents also were so incredible to have me travel a lot of the world with them that I think when you're young, you're just like such a sponge. You don't even realize what you're picking up. But I think, you know, my parents were really allowed for me to have like exposure to this creativity very young. And two, my parents were both very entrepreneurial and they really raised me with an entrepreneurial mindset. I'm an only child. So I feel like most of our family dinners from at least like age nine up. And I had my first business when I was nine. Really? Critter sitters. That was a dog, neighborhood Critter dog sitters. walking business, okay. Critter Sitters. I mean, I had a card, I had a logo, I had a whole thing. I had a pretty good business for a nine-year-old in my neighborhood. But my parents really raised me to think about, like, what we, we would just, the dinner table conversation would be like, well, make up a pretend business and, like, tell me how you're going to do it. Okay. And then, like, I used to think my dad was such a, like, he was so tough, you know, because he would poke holes. You're like, let me have I'm one like, good geez, idea. I was like, geez, you know, like, 
<laughs> where's the optimism? But actually, like they were really um, building my mindset to do my own thing. So like, I think that even when I was telling you the story of how I came out of school and I couldn't get the internship papers, so I was like, let me go around that obstacle. Right. Like I could just do this or, oh, the trait of so much money for just a booth. Like, I think if I'm going to invest like that, like what else could I do with it? Right. And so just like this mindset of like, whatever you get, you know, I got a thousand euros of free fabric. Like, how could I turn that into something? It's right. like, how can you take something small and like make something more of it? Sure. And I think that's always been um, a gift that I'm grateful for is like this inner resourcefulness of like taking something small and figuring out how to like turn it into something. Right. And, you know, I always had a, you're going to work for yourself mentality. Very much. And that was very much from, from the way my parents raised me. And so it's apparent that you're a spiritual being because of your kindness and willingness to help others. Where has spirituality throughout your life helped, supported business, professional, your family life? It helps everything, and I only wish that I had had a foundation of spirituality even earlier in my life. There's many ways to define success, and something that became more and more important to me, especially as I was studying spirituality, was just that, like, also everyone who is involved, just make sure everyone's having a good experience. And when I look back on, like, the years that I had in my company with my office, like, I have a huge smile thinking about the people who were there. And like, what a great time we had together. And there was like a magic in that. And, you know, sometimes like your sales are high. Sometimes they're not as high as you want. Sometimes you could have a crisis. But like if you're having like a good, if everyone's kind of having a good experience, even in the face of like challenges, which there will be, I feel like that's a very enduring feeling. And that might even be more important than the monetary success that comes with it. It's yeah, I mean, it's all important. And it's important if you know, you also want to create monetary success for everyone who becomes like involved in right. whatever your endeavor is. That's a part of it. You know, you want everyone to benefit from whatever undertaking is at a hand. But um I think for me, just having like a very having consciousness and really every undertaking, being proactive. Proactive confrontation, that was like, that's like my area where I struggle. You know, having certainty and really like in the transition that I went through where my identity was so enmeshed in a commercial product and a commercial brand that even though that really felt like an expression of my soul, I had to also separate myself from a product. Right. And from something commercial. And I think that ultimately is about finding your value within and always having a connection to the creator is where you really draw your strength and worth. Beautiful. We live we live in a world where there's a lot of uh, superficial nature and you don't really get to sense or feel people until you sit down and talk with them. So I, we asked this to all our guests, but if people can know one thing about you that isn't inherently known, what would you want that to be? That's a really good question. 
That's a good question because the question is really, what do you think people perceive of you? Right. Right? So one doesn't always have necessarily an accurate sense of how they're seen. So I think I would just want people to know that I'm actually like also just on a journey, making mistakes, learning from life. I think that being a designer, the nature of that business is to really project like beauty and perfection and a lot of like thought goes into that. But that doesn't mean that like every day is beautiful and perfect. Right. You know, I'm also just here living a human experience. I've got toddlers throwing their plate of food in my face. Right. And doing <laughs> your best. Hard. Yeah. And just also doing my best. Right. And I would want people to know that I'm very approachable. Mm. I'm always really happy. I, I really love it when people ask me for help or like, I love to help people. Right. That's beautiful. And I think somebody that, that's had the success you have and, and the personality that you do, it might seem like you have your own life and you're busy. And so I think even saying that to our younger audience, any woman who's aspiring to know that yourself and others like you are willing to help and have a desire to is right. They're not alone in the process. Um, beautiful. And the, so the last thing we'll finish with is, um, it's tied into the previous question we asked you about your own personal journey, but if there was anything, uh, whether it's your children or you just want somebody who's just navigating through life, like we all are to know or to understand at, at a young age that can save them challenges and maybe pain later on in life, what would, what would that, what would that thing be? Well, <laughs> I would say that, okay, well, this is debatable because I know that there's a capitalistic perspective that says like our soul chooses everything, sure. which I agree with. <laughs> our soul chooses our family and our parents and our children and all of that. But I think you do have one, one very big choice to make in life, and that is your partner selection. Mm. And because you get to really consciously, actively choose that person. If you feel marriage is for you, uh, choosing the right partner is a very important choice. And I think that um, really looking at, you know, something my, my dad said to me when I was younger, and he didn't say too much on the topic. And I just kind of thought, like, I don't know, sure, dad choose someone who has a really nice family. Okay, I will. <laughs> but I think the essence of what he's saying is that you, you might meet someone in a moment in time and, and you get an impression, you get a feeling. But I do think that understand really taking the time to understand someone's family is a very important part of the picture. Right. That is huge. And as myself, who isn't married yet, I'm game to, to hold that to account. Erin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, and I'm sure we'll have you again on soon. Um, it was valuable, not just for me, but I'm sure for every, both men and women that are listening to this podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you for having us at your home. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Erin.